So far in our study of the Messianic Psalms, we have seen the Messiah coming into the world in Psalms 40 and 8, facing extreme opposition in Psalm 69, being betrayed, rejected, and crucified in Psalms 41, 118, and 22. We have seen his death and resurrection in Psalms 34 and 16. And today in Psalms 68 and 2, we see our Messiah ascended and victorious. I wanted to let you ladies know that I will be reading from the New Living Translation today because um, it uses modern English and um, I just needed all the help I could get <laughs> with these Psalms. So um, everything is from the New Living Translation. Psalm 68 is a wonderful expression of God's great, awe-inspiring majesty. It begins just like Moses' cry in Numbers 10.35 as, as the Israelites followed the Ark of the Covenant. Arise, O God, and scatter your enemies. Let those who hate God run for their lives. Verse 1. The moving Ark is a type of Jesus. It brings to mind the time when David led a joyous procession and brought the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem with shouts of praise and the sound of trumpets. David and his people took the ark toward Mount Zion. Drive them off like smoke blown by the wind. Melt them like wax in the fire. Let the wicked perish in the presence of God, but let the godly rejoice. Let them be glad in God's presence. Let them be filled with joy, verses two and three. The wind easily chases away smoke and hard wax when put to fire melts. A candle is utterly consumed by flame. The Lord is able to do this and more to the enemies of his people. We tend to view the enemies of God as a solid mass of resistance, but God can make those who oppose him disappear in a moment. The same presence of God that fills his enemies with dread and rage and brings their death is the delight and the joy of his elect. Those saved by grace stand in striking contrast to those who will be punished with everlasting destruction. Sing praises to God and to his name. Sing loud praises to him who rides the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice in his presence. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy. But for rebels, there is only famine and distress. Verses 4 through 6. The name for God translated Lord here is Jah or Jehovah, a self-existent, self-sufficient being. He directs and manages all the heavenly bodies. He is the fountain of all being, power, motion, and perfection. This is his name forever. He is great, but also gracious, merciful, and compassionate. He uses his power for the relief of those that are the most distressed, the fatherless, the widows, and the solitary. God is the most high, but he has respect for the lowly. To this day and forever, God is and will be the guardian of the defenseless. He is so glorious that he rides on the heavens, but so compassionate that he remembers the poor of the earth. 
Oh God, when you let your people, when you led your people from Egypt, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth trembled and the heavens poured rain before you, the God of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. You sent abundant rain, O God, to refresh the weary promised land. There your people finally settled and with a bountiful, bountiful harvest, O God, you provided for your needy people. Verses 7 through 10. God himself was Israel's guide through the wilderness. When he brought them out of captivity, he did not leave them in the desert, but went before them through it and brought them safely to the land of promise. Moses tells us in Exodus 19 that even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God. The whole mountain shook as with a violent earthquake. The neighboring countries most likely felt the shock. Terrible thunderstorms accompanied the trembling. This divine majesty before whom the mountains trembled called himself the God of Israel, the only living and true God whom Israel worshiped and who had chosen to be his own, provided abundantly for them. He gave them an excellent law, a covenant between God and his people. He gave them living water, manna, quail, even in the wilderness, God found a comfortable dwelling for Israel. He brought them into the promised land and drove their enemies before them. He was their commander-in-chief, raised up judges for them, gave them their instructions, and assured them of success. He raised prophets, God's messengers, to make known his mind to them. This also looks further to the provision made for spiritual Israel. The gospel of grace and the Holy Spirit through whom God confirms his inheritance to us today. The Lord announces victory and throngs of women shout the happy news. Enemy kings and their armies flee while the women of Israel divide the plunder. Though they lived among the sheepfolds, now they are covered with silver and gold as a dove is covered by its wings. The Almighty scattered the enemy kings like a blowing snowstorm on Mount Zalman, verses 11 through 14. The interpretation of these verses is varied and I must admit confused me no end. <laughs> the one that made the most sense to me speaks of the Israelites having been despised shepherds and having labored as slaves in the brick kilns of Egypt but were delivered from that oppression and plundered the Egyptians when they left. The dove is the symbol of Israel who is so protected and blessed that God Almighty scatters their enemies. The victory is due to the Almighty alone, and their enemies are scattered much as snow is blown around in a blizzard. However, some prominent theologians, John MacArthur among them, assert that Mount Zalman means black or dark mountain and that the snow depicts the bones or corpses of Israel's enemies scattered over the mountain. Either way, the Lord is the one who both announces the victory and brings it about. The majestic mountains of Bashan stretch high into the sky why do you look with envy, O rugged mountains, at Mount Zion, where God has chosen to live, where the Lord himself will live forever? Surrounded by unnumbered thousands of chariots, the Lord came from Mount Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascend to the heights, you led when you ascended to the heights, sorry, you led a crowd of captives, you received gifts from the people, 
even from those who rebelled against you. Now the Lord God will live among us here. Verses 15 through 18. Bashan, the land northeast of Israel, was the home of mighty mountains, including Mount Hermon, the tallest and most awesome mountain in that region. In contrast, Mount Zion certainly was not a high hill, and David concedes that Bashan is a greater mount, but not so glorious, because the Lord, in choosing Zion, had exalted it above all those loftier hills. God chooses whatever pleases him, and according to the counsel of his own will, he selects Zion and passes by the proud, uplifted peaks of Bashan. By his choosing, he makes the base things of this world and the things that are despised to become monuments to his grace and sovereignty. This celebrates the final stages of a journey that began at Mount Sinai with the construction of the Ark of the Covenant and finally ended at Mount Zion, the site of the sanctuary, the chosen dwelling place of God among his people. It may also describe the moving of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. The same Lord is at both Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. He is accompanied by the same attendants, unnumbered thousands of chariots, the angels, his heavenly host. In contrast, God descended at Sinai, but ascended from near Mount Zion. He put the yoke of the law upon the Israelites at Sinai, but leads a crowd of captives from Zion. In Sinai, he appeared for a short season, but in Zion, he dwells forever. The direct Messianic reference is in verse 18. When you ascended to the heights, you led a crowd of captives. You received gifts from the people, even from those who rebelled against you. Now the Lord God will live among us here. And is found in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. That is why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This means that Christ first came down to the lowly world in which we, we live. The same one who came down is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that his rule might fill the entire universe. The whole work of salvation of Jesus Christ is summarized in these verses. His incarnation, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and Pentecost. Jesus, who is the eternal glory of heaven, came to earth, became man, died as a criminal on the cross, and was laid in a grave. The lowly world may be the earth itself, which is lowly in comparison to heaven. It may mean the grave or Hades, which was a, a resting place of souls between death and resurrection. However, we understand it. Christ is Lord of the whole universe, past, present, and future. Nothing or no one is hidden from him. The Lord of all came to earth and faced death to rescue all people. No one is beyond his reach. Jesus did not remain in the grave, but rose from the dead. The same one who came down is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that his rule might fill the entire universe. Wilhelm Busch, a German evangelist, described the ascension of the Lord this way. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. 
and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Luke 24, 50 through 52. Bethany in English means house of the poor or house of misery. The Talmud says of this place that dates never reached full maturity. Apparently it was a village where the people had a tough time. The Jewish scriptures tell us further that here was a large pool of that there was a large pool of water in Bethany. The people who had become unclean due to illness had to purify themselves there before going to the temple in Jerusalem. There was a constant cluster of poor and unclean people there, yet it was precisely from there, the house of the poor and unclean, that the Lord Jesus returned to the heavenly world. It was precisely from where, from there, that he ascended to the throne. The glory of the Lord Jesus begins in the house of the poor and unclean. What a wonderful message. The ascension of our Lord connects the poor and unclean to the throne of God. Matthew Henry asserts that not only did Christ triumph over the gates of hell, but he led those captive who had led us captive and who, if he had not inter interposed, would have held us captive forever. He led captivity itself captive having quite broken the power of sin and Satan. As he was the death of death, so he was the captivity of captivity. This intimates the complete victory which Jesus Christ obtained over our spiritual enemies. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus conquered the devil, death, hell, and sin. Death can no longer hold anyone captive who believes in the Son of God. The devil and sin can no longer enslave and blind people who put their trust in Jesus Christ. After the ascension of Jesus, Pentecost is described and gave gifts to his people. He has opened the gates of hell to all who believe. Those believers are Jesus' spoils as the conqueror. We are his gifts, and he in turn has poured out his gift on us. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit brought the spiritual gifts that are used to build the church and glorify God. Since Pentecost, even the previously rebellious Gentiles can receive God. Through the Holy Spirit, he dwells in them as well as in believing Jews. Jesus said in John 14, 23, all those who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them and we will come to them and live with them. Praise the Lord, praise God our Savior, for each day he carries us in his, in his arms. Our God is a God who saves. The sovereign Lord rescues us from death, but God will smash the heads of his enemies, crushing the skulls of those who love their guilty ways. Verses 19 through 21. Jesus is our high priest, and it, and it is because of his mediation that we live and are carried in his arms each day. He is our savior. He has broken the bonds of death through his resurrection. The keys of hell and death are in his hand, and he has both the authority and the power to rescue us forever from death. We will rise again to live with him in perfect fellowship eternally. Our response should be praise and thanksgiving, just as David's is. In contrast, God will pour out all his wrath on his enemies. All who will not have him as their sovereign ruler will not live in his presence. The Lord says, I will bring my enemies down from Bashan. I will bring them up from the depths of the sea. 
You, my people, will wash your feet in their blood, and even your dogs will get their share. Verses 22 and 23. There is no escape from the Lord. The powers of evil cannot hide in the highest mountains or in the lowest depths of the sea. So overwhelming will be their defeat that dogs will lick their blood. These are really difficult images, aren't they? The Lord's wrath is fearsome, ladies. And when he comes to the end of his patience with those who refuse his gracious gift of salvation, there will be no escape. Your possession has come into view, O God, the procession of my God and King. As he goes into the sanctuary, singers are in front, musicians are behind. With them are young women playing tambourines. Praise God, all you people of Israel. Praise the Lord, the source of Israel's life. Look, the little tribe of Benjamin leads the way. Then comes a great throng of rulers from Judah and all the rulers of Zebulun and Naphtali. Summon your might, O God. Display your power, O God, as you have in the past. Verses 24 through 28. The ark is nearing Mount Zion. The procession is joyful. Every means was taken to express Israel's delight in the Lord. There are singers, musicians, and young women playing tambourines, all praising the God of Israel. In the beginning of David's reign, there had been a long war between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, but now they are both represented in praises to their God and King. Indeed, all the tribes are present, even though all twelve are not mentioned here. Zebulun and Naphtali are the most remote to the, remote to the north, and Benjamin and Judah the closest in the south. That, this, this indicates that all were present. God's power and might are displayed in the praises of all of his 12 tribes. The kings of the earth are bringing tribute to your temple in Jerusalem. Rebuke these mighty nations, these wild animals lurking in the reeds, his herd, this herd of bulls among the weaker calves. Humble those who demand tribute from us. Scatter the nations that delight in war. Let Egypt come with gifts of precious metals. Let Ethiopia now in submission to God. Verses 29 through 31. David looks in faith to a time when the tabernacle of David would be a temple of Solomon. He prophesies that this future place of God will become a wonder to all lands. And it was. The temple of the Lord was so splendid that the queen of far off Sheba came with her gifts, as did many other rulers from neighboring kingdoms, bringing tribute to Israel's God. To some extent, these verses look to the coming Messianic kingdom as well, when the kings of the nations will bring gifts to Jerusalem and Israel will be fully restored. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. Sing to the one who rides across the ancient heavens, his mighty voice thundering from the sky. Tell everyone about God's power. His majesty shines down on Israel. His strength is mighty in the heavens. God is awesome in his sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. Verses 33 through 35. All of the nations are summoned to sing praises to him as the Lord of all creation. He spoke the universe into being. He rules all nations with awe. He rules all nature 
He rules all nations too. But this says he rules all nature with awe-inspiring majesty. His voice thundered above Sinai. He saves us and keeps us. Nothing is so high that it can be above him or so low that it can be beneath him. Everything that exists is a testament to the power and sovereignty of God. He is all-sufficient and he can sustain the weakest believer. Our only answer must be, praise be to God. All right, on to Psalm 2. There are some battles that are pointless from the start because it is clear who will win. Such a struggle is described in Psalm 2. It is a futile, a futile endeavor to revolt against the Messiah. He will be victorious. Jesus Christ and his word are the absolute truth. It is because of this truth that Satan uses all that is within his power to revolt. Satan inspires the human race to attack truth. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, Satan wouldn't war against him. There would be no need because Satan wouldn't feel threatened. He would be delighted to have us following a false Messiah and would do nothing to try to stop us. The Psalm itself doesn't identify the author, but Acts 4, 25 through 26 attribute, attributes it to David saying, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor King David, your servant. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from this slavery. Verses 1 through 3. We know how many conspired against David and tried to prevent his coming to the throne. The fact was that enemies rose up against him in all quarters, and as soon as he settled disturbances at home among his own people, the neighboring states in turn be became hostile to him. These truths can be verified in historical records. However, David knew his own kingdom to be merely a shadow. His kingdom was a kind of type of the eternal kingdom which was established in the person of Jesus Christ. And the things David declares in this psalm were predictions concerning the Messiah. In these first three verses, we see a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ. We see the nations raging, roaring like the sea with restless waves like the ocean in a storm. The Hebrew verb used here doesn't express an internal feeling, but points to the outward agitation which expresses it. This is a fretful jumpiness like horses that neigh, snort, and rush into battle. The commotion is not caused only by, by the masses, but their leaders plan the rebellion. This isn't a temporary rage, but a deep-seated hate. The rulers plot together. They are deliberate. All their wits are at work to find out ways and means to prevent the establishment of Christ's kingdom. And, and they are confident that they will succeed. Why? Because they are children of the devil. And they cannot endure the yoke of the Lord and his anointed. Their sole purpose is to overthrow the kingdom which Christ himself has set up. This attitude is evidence of spiritual insanity because they are already in bondage to their father, the, the devil, and Messiah is the only one equipped to break their bonds. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, however mad the resolution to revolt from God, 
It is one in which man has persevered ever since his creation, and he continues in it to this very day. The glorious reign of Jesus in the latter day will not be consummated until a terrible struggle has convulsed the nations. His coming will be as a refiner's fire, and the day thereof shall burn as an oven. Earth loves not her rightful monarch, but clings to the usurper's sway. The terrible conflicts of the last days will illustrate both the world's love of sin and Jehovah's power to give the kingdom to his only begotten. To a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable, but to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke or do we wish to cast it from us? But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, my holy city, verses 4 through 6. God looks at the way man plots against him, and he laughs. He isn't pacing back and forth in the throne room of heaven, wondering what he should do next. God sits in perfect peace and assurance in the heavens, the throne of heaven with authority over all creation. James Boyce puts it this way. He doesn't even rise from where he is sitting. He simply laughs at these great imbeciles. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny. God laughs in heaven, but he doesn't remain inactive. Before he acts against defiant man, he speaks to them. This shows his great mercy and love for us. He has every reason and every right to simply act against them. But love and mercy compel God to speak a word of warning before he acts. God wants man to know that he has established a king, one greater than these kings and rulers who rebel against him. God has placed, he has set, he has established, he has his chosen king on the throne, on Zion, his holy mountain in Jerusalem. When Jesus was born, the wise men came from the east the wise men who came from the east recognized him as king. They arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star and we have come to worship him, Matthew 2, 2. He fulfilled messianic signs and wonders and the people recognized them as such, asking themselves, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah, Matthew 12, 23. During his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, many shouted, Hosanna, bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord, John 12, 13. Jesus died as king. The inscription on his cross read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, John 19, 19. He is raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He has already accomplished what his enemies seek to prevent. Jesus reigns. The king proclaims the Lord's dec decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Verses seven through nine. The kingdom of the Messiah is founded upon a decree of God the Father. 
Christ proved that he had been given lawful power from God by his miracles and by the preaching of the gospel. God the Father spoke to Jesus, identifying him as the Son of the Father and emphasizing his standing as begotten of the Father. The writer to the Hebrews quotes this passage in Hebrews 1.5 as evidence of the deity of Jesus and his superiority to all angels. For God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus, you are my son, today I have become your father. And again, God said, I will be his father and he will be my son. Begotten is also an important idea. Jesus was not created. Rather, he created everything that was created. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before God made anything at all and is supreme over all creation. Christ is the one through whom God created everything in heaven and earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Kings, kingdoms, rulers, authorities. Everything has been created through him and for him. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He is the Son of God, not by adoption, but his begotten Son, the only begotten Son of the Father. John 1, 14. He is unquestionably entitled to and perfectly qualified for the great trust that his Father has given him. He is the Son of God and therefore of the same nature with the Father. Infinite wisdom, power, and holiness are his attributes as well. He is heir of all things, and the Father, having made the worlds by him, also governs them by him. The Son reflects God's own glory, and everything about him represents God exactly. He sustains the universe by the mighty power of his command. After he died to cleanse us from the stain of sin, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God of heaven. Hebrews 1.3 Furthermore, the nations have been given to Jesus as an inheritance. God the Father will deny his son nothing in relation to the extension of his kingdom to the very ends of the earth. He has only to ask. The calling of the Gentiles for salvation is foretold in these verses. It is clear that the Redeemer was never meant to be the king of only one nation. Revelation 11.15 describes an exciting culmination of Christ's inheritance. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, The whole world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The Messiah has such power over the nations that they are like clay pots that he can shatter with a blow from a rod of iron. God's kingdom will be enlarged. It will be established. Christ will triumph over all opposition. This is why it is so foolish for the nations to defy the Lord and his anointed. There is no reason and no benefit to their opposition. Rebels may expect severe judgment. The one whom they refuse to honor as their king is their judge. Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son, so, or he will become angry, and you will be destroyed in the midst of your pursuits. For his anger can flare up in an instant. 
but what joy for all who find protection in him. Verses 10 through 12. The psalmist counsels the kings of the earth to give up their foolish defiance of the Lord. He calls them to surrender to God, giving him proper reverence. It is always wise to be willing to take instruction, especially when that instruction leads to the salvation of your soul. Obedience to Jesus is wise, and those who continue to be his enemies show their recklessness. The beginning of true wisdom is when a man lays aside his pride and sub submits himself to the authority of Christ. In this surrendered place, he can find joy. True joy is found from resting in the fear and reverence of God. The proof of our obedience to God is, so, is to earnestly embrace his son, whom he has appointed king over us. For if you refuse to honor the son, then you are certainly not honoring the father who sent him. John 5:23. Those who in their pride reject Christ will not go unpunished. We are told that his anger can flare up in a moment. God's patience doesn't mean that those who um, deny him will escape unpunished. The wrath of God will cut them off in the middle of their pursuits. When people are saying, all is well, everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall upon them as suddenly as a woman's birth pains begin when her child is about to be born, and there will be no escape. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 Matthew Henry states that the son can be angry. We need to remember that although he is the Lamb of God, he is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And the wrath of this king, this king of kings, will be as the roaring of a lion and will drive even mighty men and chief captains to seek in vain for shelter in rocks and mountains. There remains no more sacrifice, no other name by which we can be saved. The final line of this psalm is one that encourages God's faithful servants and gives us hope. But what joy for all who find protection is in him. As believers, we need not be overwhelmed by the terror of God's wrath. He is our refuge and our hope. Let's pray. Father God, help us to remember that only in you, in your presence, will we find joy. Help us to remember that our response should always be to praise you. Help us to trust that you will fulfill all of your promises. Your victory over evil is assured, Lord, and we thank you for that. Our salvation is freedom from sin and death, and we thank you for that also. Help us to remember all you have done for us. Help us to be grateful and to realize that our one sure route to freedom is by wholeheartedly serving you. We recognize you as the rightful king of our hearts and lives and ask for your help to fully submit to your will in our lives. Amen.